0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: All right, it's wonderful to see you all here tonight uh, for the second week as we Uh, talk about uh, the Bible and evolution and primarily to see scientific evidence of our magnificent creator God. Uh, I'm happy, as was mentioned, to talk to any of you afterwards or in future days if you want to email me and ask uh, more questions. It's a deep and rich topic. And I found very much from last week how quickly the time goes. Uh, And I don't have the safety net of next week this time, so we've got to get it done and walk through it. But I hope it'll be an encouragement Uh, to all of you. Uh, My original purpose and vision for this time was to address the youth and to get you folks ready for challenges you're going to face when you go off to college or university or out into the secular world, because uh, the world that you're going into is dominated by a philosophy, an anti-God philosophy of naturalism, uh, materialism, atheism, um, that is behind uh, all of the secularism that we have, the idea of secularism that we need to keep our faith out of the public square, not talk about it, uh, where we do our work together, where we study together and all that. God is not really welcome there. Uh, And frankly, Darwinism, evolution is behind a lot of those transformations. It wasn't always that way in our culture, the secularism. So we want to walk through that I hope all of you got a handout. We've got lots of them there, and you should grab them Uh, if you didn't get it. uh, Now you can just listen or get up and get one at the doors, uh, either now or at the end of the time. Now I want to begin by talking about God's two books of knowledge. God's two books of knowledge. God has given to His people two great books or sources of truth, of knowledge, and they are creation, physical creation, and Scripture. Now, I want to be, uh, be open in stating that these two books are not equally clear. I'm not saying that. Scripture is far clearer and far more significant in what it says to us for our eternal destiny. But both books, creation, the physical creation, and Scripture are from God. They're communications of truth from God to the human race. And the two books rightly understood... Never contradict each other, because as has been said, all truth is God's truth. So part of my desire, my commitment in these two weeks is that you would love science. Not that all of you would go into science, but that you would not be afraid of it or think we've got to stay out of it. Uh, But what I'm claiming last week and this week is that naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic evolution is not science. It's pseudoscience. It's false science. It's more of a philosophy or religion. And we're going to walk through more of that today. Now, in terms of these two books, perhaps no one passage of Scripture brings them both together in the same way as Psalm 19, Psalm 19. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So creation speaks. The heavens declare the glory of God. Hence the concept of the book of creation that we read. But we also have at the end of the psalm, Psalm 19, 7 and 8 and beyond that even in that psalm, a declaration of the beauty and the perfection of Scripture The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And so in one psalm, Psalm 19, you have both of these sources of truth. We have creation, communicating the greatness and majesty of God. And then you have the law of God or the written word of God. And it's especially important for us as Christians to understand we know nothing at all about Jesus Christ from nature. We can't learn anything about Jesus Christ from nature. Everything we know about Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, has come from Scripture and from proclamation from Scripture. Therefore, evangelism, missions is essential. No one can call on the name of the Lord without hearing of Jesus, and that happens based on Scripture. That's why Scripture is preeminent. And yet... The Bible celebrates creation as a valid way of knowing God. God himself does that in the book of Job. If you look at Job 38 and 39, uh, when God shows up and, and talks to the suffering Job and he shows up in a whirlwind and uh, speaks so powerfully and clearly to him. In Job 38 and 39, it's God himself doing what we call natural theology. God is speaking based on nature. He's speaking based on creation. And first in Job 38, he talks about inanimate creation, right? Just the physical universe that God made. Uh, For example, the foundations of the earth, the limits of the raging sea, the control of the clouds, the rhythm of sunrise and sunset, the subterranean regions of the earth, different types of precipitation mentioned by God there, snow, hail, rain, and dew, the power of lightning, the distant stars with their physical laws, etc. God celebrates these things because he made them, and he delights in them, and he commends them as evidence of his majesty and his wisdom and his power. Then he goes into animals, 10 animals, and he just walks through those animals, uh, the lioness when she hunts, the raven when it scavenges. Mountain goats and deer when they give birth, wild donkeys when they run free, the wild ox when it resists man's yoke, the ostrich when it treats her young so harshly by putting her eggs on the ground, but then spreads her wings that can't fly and runs, Uh, runs like the wind. wind, and then the horse when it rushes fearlessly into battle, the hawk and the eagle when they soar in the thermals and ride on the wind. So God celebrates these things. Man's wisdom and power cannot do any of these things. We cannot understand them fully. And naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic evolution cannot explain any of them. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So now last week I gave you those three worldview questions. And I want you to get ready when you go to college or to university or out into your secular uh, lives, your jobs out in the world, uh, these three basic questions of worldview stand over every human being. Everyone needs to think about them. And we can use them in evangelism. We can use them as we, when we share our faith with people. Question of creation, where did everything come from? Origins, why is there something rather than nothing? Secondly, fall, what went wrong? Why is everything so messed up why is there so much evil and suffering uh, and disease and death in the world what went wrong what is the source of the evil and suffering and then thirdly redemption what can be done about the problems in the world And, and also we could say to some degree where are we heading destination where are we going with all this so these three basic questions of worldview I would commend them to you for your study Uh, We can use them to analyze every worldview and every religion. Every religion has its answer to these questions. Every worldview does, and Christianity does as well. And for us, as Christians, the origin of everything coming from the direct creative activity, the wise creative activity of God, is essential to everything that follows. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything comes from that. And so... We do not think that evolution is a, is a sidebar or unimportant uh, red herring or distraction that someone brings up when we're sharing our faith and they bring it up. It is a significant issue where everything came from. And so we need to be willing to study it. Uh, evolution is a threat. It's a threat to our, our thoughts. It's a threat to our lives. It is a religion. It's a belief. And we walked through some of this as review from last time. The scientific materialist believes that matter and energy is all there ever has been, is, or ever will be. And reduces everything then to scientific laws and random chance, to nature. Since nature is everything, then there can be no super nature, anything beyond nature. Um, Supernatural things such as God himself or miracles. And so they fight against it. It's against our faith. Now, what is evolution? This is a definition from last time, and you've got uh, the slide up there you can see, but it comes uh, from this quote I have on the, in the outline. Evolution is a deduction from naturalism, and it's essentially the idea that things made themselves. There is no God that made everything, so everything that is basically came up out of matter and energy things made themselves. This includes um, these ideas. Uh, Nothing gave rise to something at the Big Bang. Non-living matter gave rise to life. Single-celled organisms gave rise to multi-celled organisms. Invertebrates gave rise to vertebrates. Ape-like creatures gave rise to man. Non-intelligent and amoral matter gave rise to intelligence and morality. Man's yearnings gave rise to religion, et cetera. That's evolution. That's what we're dealing with here. That's what we're talking about these two weeks. Now, as I talked about last time, the basic mechanism of Neo-Darwinism is genetic mutations that uh, that, that prove beneficial to the species and help it to survive compared to other aspects of that species that don't have those mutations. That's natural selection, what's generally known popular as survival of the fittest. Darwin didn't know about genes. Mendel was doing his work just about the same time. Uh, That's why we call it neo-Darwinism, the next phase of Darwinism. Darwin didn't know about genetics, but putting those sciences together, that's what neo-Darwinism is. Random occurrences, such as uh, what we call them beneficial genetic mutations, changes in the genetic code, uh, randomly and accidentally and chaotically assemble themselves into ever greater complexity, remember last time I had that picture of the inverted house of cards like a pyramid that you're building with a big fan blowing on it the whole time, so you're going from simple to ever more complex, Uh, they assemble themselves into ever greater complexity producing attributes and behaviors that enable the species to survive if you have them. And those, those mutations stick, they hold in the population, and that's how it builds. That's, that's evolution, that's what they teach. Now, when you go to college or university where you get out there into popular uh, society, why are we facing such pushback? Why has all this happened? Uh, what is going on? Why do these incredibly intelligent people, and they are brilliant scientists, um, why do they think we are so foolish for what we believe Uh, It's intimidating, it really is, and many of them, not all of them, but many of them do seek to be intimidating. They seek to mock you if you don't believe in evolution. But what's going on in their minds and hearts? Well, the Bible addresses that actually. The greatest chapter on natural theology is Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, um, it says in verses 18 through 21, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth. They hold it down. It's like the truth is their enemy and they're fighting the truth. They're opposing the truth. They're holding it down uh, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And so, it's really remarkable how these unbelieving scientists are hostile to God, they're opposed to God's rule in their lives, and they hold down or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And I gave you two quotes in my handout here that give you uh, a clear example of this suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The first from Richard Dawkins, who's one of the number one kind of uh, leaders in the Darwinian apologetic, uh, defending Darwinism science against Christianity, very hostile, he's an atheist, very hostile to our Christian faith. And he said this, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, but really weren't. So that's amazing, and then you look at the quote from Francis Crick, who came up with the DNA double helix structure, which we're going to talk about later this evening. Uh, But uh, Watson and Crick that came up with that model and won a Nobel Prize for it, that double helix model of of the DNA molecule. Um, They were extremely concerned that you misunderstand what they found. Say, please don't think that an intelligent creator made this. I know it sure looks like it, but it's not true. And so, uh, Francis Crick said this, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Well, why do they have to do that? Why do they have to constantly keep it in mind? Because so much of what they see in biology speaks to purpose and intention, as we saw with the complexity of the living cell last time and we'll briefly review again. So those two quotes to me are clear examples of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So as I put the slides together, I decided to put them on a backdrop of lightning flashing down because it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So God will, God will kind of move out and, and oppose those that oppose his clear truth. But you can see even in that a display of the greatness and the majesty of God. Now, last time I introduced to you the three great scientific problems with evolution, and here I give them to you again. We dealt with one of them um, and then ran out of time. I don't know if you remember a week ago, it was seven twelve, and I was shocked that it was seven twelve. I was like, what am I going to do? Um, And now it's 7.02, and I'm shocked again. But anyway, let's keep going. Um, Problem number one, the origin of life, where did the first living cell come from? Friends, that's really all you need. That's really all you need. The cell is so complicated, there's just no way that in an instant, mind you, not over billions of years, it could not be, but in an instant, planet Earth went from not a single living cell on Earth to one living cell that then replicated itself. That's what they teach, and that cannot be. So, in my opinion, naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic evolution is dead in the, in, uh, right there. there. There is no way. It cannot happen. We talked about that last time. We'll, we'll walk through that a little bit, but then go to the next two. Then the fossil record. Why doesn't the fossil record show continuous development of species? It doesn't. There are a few kind of claimed transitional figures here and there, but generally, it just doesn't show evolution. And then thirdly, irreducible complexity, and I'm adding another aspect of that from the last week's handout, origin of information. Honestly, I could have given you four great scientific problems with evolution, but I was stuck with the number three because that's what I promised last time. And always So I decided to combine the last two, but they really are somewhat different, but related. Irreducible complexity, which is you got to have everything there or it doesn't work. And so how can you gradually build up into it? That's irreducible complexity. We'll talk about that. And then just basically, where does the information for everything come from? That is a strong argument for a creator. All right, so we're going to walk through these. Now, just by way of review, problem number one, the origin of life, where did the first living cell come from? The weakest link in the entire evolutionary theory, at some point... Our planet went from not one living cell on earth to one living cell on earth. And how in the world it did that, that's the whole challenge. Now the the idea of life coming from non-life is called abiogenesis. Darwin understood this as a challenge but underestimated how complex a cell is. He thought it was uh, basically a simple, a very simple Device, We don't need to know much about it. But modern research has shown that the cell is almost impossibly complex. Now, you guys remember the video, the computer CGI video from last week of the tour inside the cell? We're going to have another video later in a few minutes that shows some more complexity within a a single cell. But there's that picture. And uh, every year, the more research that comes shows the complexity of the cell. How does that suddenly spring up? with the, uh, the listing of capabilities, that origin of life prize that says, if you can come up with some way, just write a, a, a theory of how this could have happened with a cell wall, information for reproduction, and moving from information to chemicals, how that happens, the, the cell can eat, it can reproduce, it can heal itself, it can grow, deal with the environment and be stable, stable yet adaptable. That's what they define as life minerals don't do that but living cells do all those things how do you go in an instant from nothing on earth is doing any of those functions to a cell doing all of them how can that be and so that's the challenge of of the first living cell seems like magic but that's what the evolutionists believe. I brought out last time James Tour, some of you may have looked him up online. I would commend his uh, podcast and his videos on YouTube and other things, he's really brilliant man, Messianic Jew, a believer in Jesus Christ, um, and one of the greatest scientists on earth. He says flat out, abiogenesis cannot ever happen. The scientists that are trying to do it in the lab are fudging it, that means they're lying about their data. They're cutting corners. They're not doing real science. Why? So they can get next year's research dollars again. But all of those research dollars are being wasted. Get back to the quote from James Tour. I know they're fudging it and most people and even most scientists don't know enough to argue with them, but I do. You can read the rest of the quote which I read last week. He's saying no one on earth has any explanation of how this possibly could have happened. No one. And so all the money that's gone into trying to figure it out is wasted because of the absurd level of complexity. Remember that big number I put up on the, you know, that 10 to the 79 billion and I just ran out of time and ran out of patience to do 79 billion zeros? Um, But it's just that one over a big number is effectively zero. And that 10 to the 79 billionth, I've been around math and science my whole adult life. That's the biggest number I've ever heard of in my life other than infinity. That's a huge number. So fundamentally, that cannot happen. The first living cell could not arrange itself. All right, that was last week. Let's dig in now on the next two. Pro- problem number two, the fossil record. Why doesn't the fossil record show continuous evolution of species? Now, what are fossils? They are the physical remains of dead creatures that are locked into rocks so that their structures can be studied by scientists. The study of fossils is called paleontology, study of old things. When Darwin published his uh, book on the origin of species in 1859, he was initially vigorously opposed by Charles Lyell, the leading geologist of his day. And why? Because the fossil record did not show the continuous development of species. Darwin himself acknowledged the problem. Darwin said this, why, why, if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradations, do we not see, every, everywhere see, innumerable transitional forms? Not one or two, not a, a missing link, but a dimmer switch, a ramp. And the fossil record, like, like strobe photography, showing the development. You can, can line them up, the fossils, side by side by side for different species. It doesn't show it. said, why is not nature in all confusion instead of the species being as we see them well defined? I do not pretend that I should ever have suspected how poor a record of the mutations of life, the best preserved geological section presented, had not the difficulty of our not discovering innumerable transitional links between the species which appeared at the commencement and close of each formation pressed so hardly on my theory. In other words, this was a problem for me, and so I can't solve it, I'm just hoping that in future generations, um, paleontologists will find the missing links, all of them. But right now, the fossil record doesn't show it, that's what he thought. But the problem has only gotten worse, similar to molecular cell biology. We basically have now, based on the way uh, paleontologists and geologists talk about the earth, the whole column of antiquity from the orig- origin of the earth till now, everything's filled in, there just aren't these transitional forms. Not like they're waiting to find them. They actually have millions of fossils. Millions of fossils, but there's not these transitional forms. And so this, uh, Douglas uh, Futuima, who is an evolutionist, said this, it is considered likely that all the animal phyla, the organizing categories, became distinct before or during the Cambrian period, for they all appear fully formed without intermediates connecting one form to another. We don't have them. So they all came in fully formed. Not one transitional form from multi-celled creatures to marine invertebrates. What are marine invertebrates? They're sea creatures with no backbone or skeleton. Sponges, worms, jellyfish, snails, and then exoskeletons like uh, crabs and lobsters. Those are called marine invertebrates. They have these creepy, nasty-looking things called trilobites which was in the original slide in this section, but I I put another inside. There they are. Aren't they They're just creepy looking? And they're called trilobites because they have like three lobes, uh, three parts. They're extinct. Um, And you look at them, it's like, oh, look at that. Evolution must have happened. No, extinction must have happened. But here's the deal. If you look at that trilobite, you realize there's a staggering level of complexity in that creature. And there are no fossils leading up to it. You understand what I'm saying? There's no like 90% of a trilobite or 80% or 50%. There's there's no fossils leading up to it. They just appear, lots of them, in the fossil record just like that. And then they're extinct. They're gone. Let me ask you a question, you brilliant people. Could you make one of those in your workshop or your lab, do you think? Could any scientist make a trilobite? They're incredibly complicated. And there is no fossil record of of evolution up to them. They just appear in the fossil record like that. All right. And then the next stage, uh, there's not one transitional form from marine invertebrates to marine vertebrates. Those are, are marine creatures with a backbone and skeleton. Evolutionists tell us that journey took 100 million years. I would think somewhere in there, there'd be at least one fossil. What do you think? But there just aren't transitional forms from invertebrates to vertebrates. You just don't have them. And then the next level, from fish to amphibian, there are some transitional figures, but they're all questionable. I'm going to keep moving here. From amphibian to reptile, no satisfactory candidates. So, Stephen J. Gould, uh, who's now deceased, but uh, he was a Harvard paleontologist, one of the leading experts uh, in... The fossil record. He was on the cover of Newsweek magazine in 1982, touting evolution. He's probably one of the most popular uh, spokesmen, scientist spokesmen for evolution before he died. He basically waved the white flag on the fossil record and came up with a theory, actually revived an old theory, but came up with a new version of an old theory called punctuated equilibrium. And basically, what it is, is that Evolution happened in between the fossils. All right? There's no, there's no dimmer switch in the fossil because it happened really quickly. It doesn't happen all at once like a dimmer switch or like a ramp. It's more like I think there's another, the next slide, uh, there's a diagram, little by little. Instead of that ramp from species one to two to three, we're not seeing that. Um, it's a very steep jump to species one, and then another st- steep jump to species two, and then another steep jump to species three, and what do you know? The strobe light photograph of the fossils just didn't capture the evolution happening. Does that make sense? Well, I'm just thinking evolution didn't happen. I think that's just evidence that that didn't happen. But what you do know from Stephen Jay Gould, who believed in evolution to the day he died, is the fossils don't show evolution. And so you have to redefine evolution. It's not a continuous, incremental change going on all the time and slowly, like Darwin said. But it's in between. It's very controversial. Most uh, Darwinists don't accept it because they know that's not evolution the way that we've known it. But anyway, that tells you the fossil record doesn't show evolution. All right, problem number three. Irreducible complexity and the origin of information. Part of it, the popular question I would ask you is, what good is half a wing? I would say for flight. I acknowledge that ostriches have wings and those wings may help them be steady as they run really fast, but they sure don't help them fly. All right, so we're talking about flight. We'll get into all this, but let's talk first about irreducible complexity. What does that mean? Darwin made this assertion, if it could be demonstrated, that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications My theory would absolutely break down. So that's what Michael Behe and some others call irreducible complexity. You can't take away um, any portion of that system and have the whole thing still do what it's supposed to do. All right? You need all of the component parts there and functioning, or that capability doesn't happen that's very strongly against evolution because you can't evolve up into that little by little or gradually. That's the whole, the whole point. So Michael Behe in his book, uh, Darwin's Black Box, which is referring to the cell, um, Darwin's Black Box, came up with an illustration of this simple mousetrap. So you see that mousetrap and it's in your handout a, a, as well. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hands. How many of you have ever set a mousetrap like that? All right. a Good number of you. All right. Somebody call out. What did you use for bait? I've used peanut butter before. What do you guys? The peanut butter, cheese. That's the traditional one. Chunk of cheese. Got to be Swiss cheese with little holes in it. Anyway, well there it is. There's the basic mouse trap. Now that mouse trap, uh, I guess that's Victor or something that made that particular one. They have it down now. They've been it's been the same design. They've not developed it for decades now. They've got it down to that's what you need to have that design work. Does that make sense? Everything you see there, except the printing that tells the name of the company, everything you see there is necessary, it's essential to the function of the mousetrap. Okay, so Michael B. He put it this way. You cannot start with just the wooden base and catch a few mice and then later add the spring and catch a few more mice, and then in time add the hammer and catch even more mice. No, no, no. All the parts have to be assembled at once or you don't catch any mice at all. You cannot get gradual improvements in function by adding the pieces incrementally, one at a time. Instead, the entire system has to be in place from the beginning in order for it to perform at all. So that's... That's what we're talking about with irreducible complexity. Let me give you a complex kind of picture of it. Take your body, the human body. You realize you have all kinds of systems, the nervous system, muscular system, skeletal system, circulatory system, endocrine system, digestive system. You have all these systems, your respiratory system. All of them have to function, right, for you to live. Well, how do you go from a single-celled creature in which it's one-stop shopping like a paramecium where everything's inside the one cell to, hey, tell you what, from now on, we'll take care of this if you take care of that. How do you evolve up into that? And, And even more, how do you get up to the point where you've got liver cells, blood cells, bone cells, and they all are relying on the other system to do their job so that they can focus on their liver selling or their digesting or their breathing? See what I'm saying? How do you evolve up into that? That's the complexity. Michael Behe talks about the eyeball. The eyeball, everything there, sight, everything has to be there functioning or you don't get sight. You can have an agglomeration of cells, but you're not getting sight until everything's up and running, everything's up and working. I'm gonna zero in on the topic of flight. So let's think about, there's that beautiful picture of an eagle flying. Think about what's involved in birds Flying. So here's, here's a simple assertion that a naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic evolutionist would say. There was a time on planet Earth when no species could fly. And now, several species can fly. So therefore, the ca- capability for flight evolved. I'm like, okay, tell me how. How did flight evolve? How do we do that, all right? Let's talk about birds. To fly, they need wings with feathers, wings with feathers. But feathers are stunningly complex, all right? Look at this microscope photograph of the, of the uh, portions, uh, uh, portions of a uh, feather. It's incredibly complicated, right? Each feather consists of a central shaft carrying a series of barbs which are positioned at right angles to the shaft to form the vein. The barbs which make up the vein are held together by rows of barbules. From the anterior barbules, hooks project downward which interlock with ridges on the posterior barbules. So altogether, in the flight feather of a large bird, like an eagle, about a million barbules interlock And cooperate to form an amazing and impervious air vein. This vein allows lift in the air which is essential to flight. Flight feathers are remarkably light and strong with many aerodynamic principles built in which cooperate with the bird's skeletal, musculatory, respiratory, and neurological systems to enable flight. You need all of those systems Working. I began reading an article on, on bird uh, respiratory system. They're very different than ours because they're taking in air differently than we do. And so it's remarkable. Zero in and though just on the feather. You can see the complexity of feathers. How do you evolve incrementally up into that feather? How do these random genetic mutations stack up over 100 million years, let's say, Let's say flight took 100 million years to evolve. How do they stack up? Why would they stack up? Let's just freeze frame the thing 50 million years in. All right? You're 50 million years in. And you have all of these mutations that are stacking up, but they're not doing anything for the species yet. You know what I'm saying? The thing can't fly. Not yet. All right? My question is the whole natural selection thing says why would it pass on the mutations? It's not helping it. So the rules of the game are the mutations have to help the species every single incremental step of the way. But they're not helping it to fly. So why would they pass on the mutations? And you're not getting halfway through. You're not getting .001% of the way there. You know why? Because there's no one that says, I know the journey, I know where we're heading, right? I know we're trying to get to flight, and this is what we need to do it. There is no mastermind. There's no plan. There's no intelligence. There's no knowledge. This whole thing's random. Why would it keep going toward flight if nobody's sitting at the controls making it happen? It doesn't make any sense. And so there's that slide. I love the little yellow bar at the bottom where where flight evolved, right? And you've got all these species that are working, 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 working toward finally uh, they can fly. Do you see how the yellow thing kind of goes up off the ground at some point? Isn't that fun? So whoosh, at some point they can fly. All right, I'm like, all right, like right before the whoosh part, what's going on there? Why would it pass on the mutations? It's not helping it to fly. Oh, because we know we're heading toward flight. Who knows that? There is no God masterminding this thing. Doesn't make any sense. But that's what they're arguing for. It all just happened. And where does the information for the flight come from? Information, the recipe is essential. I was an engineer for 10 years. And a lot of what I did in engineering was coming up with recipes, effectively, designs that would then be replicated in mass production, Like my last engineering job, I worked for a company that made powder cappuccino machines for convenience stores. Have any of you ever had a hot chocolate from a convenience store machine? You know that little machine you push the button, or a powder cappuccino. Some of you are nodding. It's, yeah, it's not very good, Pastor. It's like I didn't make the powder. All right, we made the machine that mixed the powder and all that. I my job was to take a three-head machine and turn it into a one-head machine so it wouldn't take up so much counter space. If the convenience store owner didn't want to give a lot of counter space to powder cappuccino. All right, so I came up with a set of drawings. Uh, basically, a recipe for the single-head powder cappuccino machine that then was mass-produced and they made hundreds of them. You see what I mean? It's, it's intelligence. It's, it's, it's knowledge of how to make the left sheet metal panel, the right sheet metal panel, the back panel, the hot water thing, how it gets assembled, the wiring, all of that. And that's a simple, that's a simple design, it's a simple machine. So, information is everything. Now, I want to stop and just give a cool story, one of my favorite stories. Uh, I read a book a number of years ago called To Conquer the Air, about Orville and Wilbur Wright. And I just want to tell you, these guys are amazing. They were bicycle manufacturers and repair guys in the late 19th century uh, who became very interested in the problem of heavier-than-air flight. By that I mean as opposed to hot air balloons which people have been doing for a couple of centuries before then. Uh, But Orville and Wilbur studied this, they they zeroed in on on, uh, gliders that people were already doing gliders and all that, but they wanted powered flight. And so they uh, spent a lot of time watching birds. They would go to the ocean and they would watch birds. They're from Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, but they fell in love with our home state, um, Kitty Hawk. I just think it's funny that the license plate says first in flight. Ohio should have that license plate because they're from Dayton, Ohio. But you're like, pastor, be loyal to your state. I'm just telling you. These were a couple of Ohio boys that found some sand dunes with some good wind currents out there at Kildevil Hills at Kitty Hawk. At any rate, I digress. And I don't have time to digress. Anyway, let's keep going. December 17th, 1903, after all of their experimentation, after pioneering wind tunnels to study contours of wings so they could get lift, and little by little, honing in on the right shape, the correct shape of the wings, on December 17, 1903, and Kitty Hawk, they flew, 12-second flight. Over the next few years, they perfected their technique of launching their device, their, their right Flyer, at Huffman Prairie in Ohio, and they got really good at real flight, going hundreds of feet in the air. Flying against the wind, doing figure eights, landing softly. They had the whole thing down. And there were no flight schools back then because no one knew how to fly. But they, little by little, developed the right flyer, how to make one, and how to fly it. And they had all that knowledge. Well, Wilbur found out about um, a prize being offered in Le Mans, uh, France, near Paris, And he also knew that there was tremendous amount of poisonous disdain for the Wright brothers. And so, no one believed that these American local yokels actually solved this problem that a lot of people were working on. And so, they wanted to go over and prove them wrong. Well, what happened was they packed up um, the Wright flyer on a ship and they steamed over to France and, and when they landed, the French custom agents destroyed the flyer. They completely destroyed it. Twelve broken ribs of the uh, flyer. The wing, one of the wing, wings was completely shredded. Lots of pieces. The radiator was, was destroyed. Uh, nuts, bolts, wires, entirely gone. Wilbur Wright is one of the coolest customers in history. He had, had no freak out at all. Why? Because he had his notebook, he had his experience, and he had in his head the recipe for how to build a right flyer. And he built one out of French materials. And then on August um, 8, uh, 1908, um, he brought it out, positioned it on the rails, got the Derrick counterweight system, looked like an oil rig counterweight system that fell and launched it like an aircraft carrier launches, uh, you know, an F-14 or something like that. Got the whole thing rigged out and then calmly said to this huge crowd, skeptical crowd that was watching, gentlemen, today I am going to fly. And he did. And he flew for a little over two minutes. He went over their heads 50 feet, did turns against the wind, and landed softly about 50 feet away from where he took off, exactly where he wanted to land. That's an amazing story. I think somebody should make a movie. I think it would be super cool. So there's all these pictures of that. The key is the design, the blueprint, the recipe for how to fly. That's what he knew how to do. So let's go back then to natural flight. Who came up with the recipe for the feather? Who came up with the recipe for birds? Where does that information come from? It's more complicated than a right flyer. Far more complicated. Where did that information come from? Evolution says it happened by random genetic mutations. But in the millions of years it took for those mutations to stack up, the species would not have been able to fly and had no information of where to go next, the next step. And why would that journey even be made? We believe that God encoded the information for flight in the genetic code of the birds. Now, I want you to see a brief three-minute video on the DNA and how it tells the cells what proteins to make. So go ahead and watch that, and we're almost done. The last picture, that was within a single c- cell, um, and that's the DNA basically writing the code an RNA, which then goes to a protein factory, makes the protein in two stages, the sequence and then the shape, and then it's sent to do its job. So when the bird needs to replace a missing feather, uh, it eats a bunch of like sunflower seeds and drinks some puddle water, and then the internal information does the rest. It's incredible. And the information there is not just for flight for one species of birds, but for all species of birds. And not just for flight, but for all the capabilities of all animals and all humans. All of that information has got to come from somewhere. Where did it come from? And it's encoded in the DNA in a certain sequence, like a story that's written. And that sequence tells everything. Now there's some quotes in here we don't have time to read. One of my favorites is the concept of if you have some monkeys hammering on, on typewriters and you give them infinite number of monkeys, an infinite no- amount of time, at some point you'll get all of the works of Shakespeare. Like, no you won't. You ought to read the quote. It's pretty funny. Somebody actually did this experiment. And apparently the monkeys like to hit the computers with rocks. Um, use them, if I can say it gently, as an outhouse. And they like the letter S in particular. Lots of S's when any letters were s- struck. So, long way from Shakespeare's complete works. And frankly, the complexity of life in all the cells are far more complicated than Shakespeare's complete works. All right, friends. We have seen in these two weeks three great scientific evidences for intelligence, in the creation of the world, we have seen tremendous obstacles, I would say insurmountable obstacles for naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic evolution. You don't need to wilt or melt like a snowflake at the mocking of some genius scientist. Ask them these three questions. Where did the first living cell come from? Why doesn't the fossil record show Evolution And where did the information for all of life come from? Where did all of that wisdom come from? And see what they say. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for these two great books that we, are, we have access to. Uh, not equally clear, but equally from you the book of nature, of creation, of looking around as we sang in that song that Matt led us in, that you have made all things and sustain all things. All things are for the praise of your glory. But Lord, also you have spoken more clearly through the prophets and in your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for the time we've had these two weeks uh, to learn a little bit more about science and to give confidence to our young people that our faith is not foolish, but is actually very foolish to say that there is no God. In Jesus' name, amen
0: and for the glory of God.